Frank Schuter is formerly the Managing Director for Retail Product and Marketing for South Africa's largest life insurer, Liberty. In a gutsy move, he left his cushy gig there to found a startup called MobiLife, which is Africa's first 100% mobile insurance offering that aims to transform microinsurance in South Africa. In this conversation, Frank chats to me about what would possess him to take on the massive incumbents who currently dominate South Africa's fiercely competitive multi-billion dollar life insurance market and how far ahead of the online insurance adoption curve he thinks he and his team might be. This is African Tech Conversations. Frank Schuter, Chief Executive at MobiLife. Uh, what would possess you to leave South Africa's largest insurer, by some assured, I believe, um, a cushy position there, to start this business? Thanks, Andila. Great to talk to you. Well, yeah, after nearly 25 years in the life insurance industry, I'm a believer in life insurance. I've seen the tremendous good that proper insurance cover can do for families. But I've also seen many of the problems. And I think uh, particularly the insurance industry is not doing a good job of serving lower-income consumers in South Africa. And that's an opportunity I identified. And so we at MobiLife, we're bringing a whole range of innovations to the market with one purpose. We want to deliver better outcomes to customers at the lower end of the economic scale. What does that translate to in practical terms? What have you identified as pain points for that market that, you know, that you've found haven't been serviced? Had, you found the bigger players aren't servicing uh, adequately? Okay, so I think there are a couple of, as you say, pain points that I really can identify. The first thing is, do you know that in South Africa every year, the insurance industry cancels more than 6 million life cover policies? No, I didn't actually know that. Uh, but I would have thought that comes with the, with the, with the territory. Is that, a, is that number unusually high? Six million. I think think of six million customers that have been paying premiums for months or years and now have their policy cancelled that they'll never get a cent of value out of that policy. That for me is a terrible outcome. And the problem is that the policies are too inflexible. You have to pay your premium every month. The moment you skip more than one, the company will typically uh, lapse or cancel your policy. And I just think the economic reality, if you're somebody earning three or 4,000 rand a month, your reality is some months life happens and you just don't have cash to pay your insurance. And I believe you shouldn't lose your policy whenever that happens. I imagine though that's a problem if you care to, to care about it, uh, except um, I, I don't imagine in a business environment that, you know, in a for-profit environment, that would be a problem at all. Wouldn't that be good news? Well, I, I think this whole issue of lapsing is really an outcome of the uh, established insurance model, which is ro uh, largely intermediary-driven. So intermediaries go out there and sell a large number of insurance policies every year. And, of course, they earn a, an upfront commission for, for doing that, which is fair enough. But that means that when the customer stops paying for a month or two, that you have to lapse that policy to try and recoup those costs. So it's really a function of an old-fashioned distribution model that is giving rise to these poor customer outcomes. And so at MobiLife, we've said, let's use the power of the smartphone in your pocket to make life insurance cheaper, easier to access, and a hell of a lot more flexible. At MobiLife, we will never cancel your policy if you skip a premium. In fact, even if you skip 11 premiums in a row, we will never cancel your policy due to the non-payment of a premium. 
And now we're going to get back to how you do that because, and that's that's a question I'm going to ask mostly for my wife and her curiosity, given her actuarial background. But we'll get back to that. I'm more interested initially to talk about the fact that you've chosen to branch out on your own on a tech play, um, which is really the interest, uh, my interest specific to this interview. Um, tell me the thought process around identifying, you know, uh, uh, what's essentially a technological play in this space in order to launch your solution yeah right i mean i did a lot of reading and research for a good few months before i decided to make the move and the easiest way i find of explaining it is think think of the phone you had in your pocket 10 years ago and think what you could do with that phone compare that to the phone that you have today and what you're doing with it and imagine in 10 years time the way that we as consumers are going to be interacting with our banks, with our insurance companies, with you know, business at large is dramatically going to change. We are already changing our, our, our purchasing uh, behaviors. And so really, you know, I think that smartphones are just going to fundamentally change the world. And companies that are not adapting their business model to be relevant to consumers in that paradigm, in that environment, are going to fall by the wayside. We may be a little bit ahead of the curve because I think, you know, particularly lower income consumers might just now be getting their first smartphone. They don't immediately leap out of bed and and start using it to transact. But in 10 years time, I'll take a bet that they'll be doing that. I bet that you've clearly worked into the name of your business, MobiLife. Uh, you, beautiful segue uh, into my next question, which is really you've spoken to in some, in some you know, to some ex extent. Um how ready are people for this? And uh, I'd imagine that there are good things or things we've come to expect or find comfort in the, the, the existing models that exist. You know, the, the comfort of being able to pick up a phone and speak to your broker or, um, in, in, you know, uh, the, the way sort of typically uh, in a community setup, in a, in a low-income community setup, the word gets around where to get your insurance and from whom and that kind of thing. Those sort of things, you know, by the, by the looks of it, uh, given what I've seen so far, as far as your model's concerned, are out of the picture entirely. Uh, how long before people are comfortable with this? Look, I think any new brand in financial services will take a while to gain the uh, the trust and the knowledge of, of, of the marketplace out there. So we're certainly not naive to that. You know, customers, if they're going to be giving you their bank account details and their premiums, they want to be they want to know that they're dealing with a with a proper organisation. But just back to the sales model of, you know, being ready in digital. You know, for me, it's very much different strokes for different folks. If you're the kind of person that likes a 45-minute call center conversation, you know, with people and you like that kind of stuff, you know, you're not going to be our customer. There are many established businesses that you can deal with. But if you're the kind of person that at half past four in the, in the morning wants to do some business, wants to get some of the, the insurance uh, business done, we're going to be for you because we open 24-7, 365, very simple products, very simple processes, and a, a number of customers already today are responding to that proposition. It does mean we don't have the millions of options that you could get from you know, the larger insurance companies. We don't have all the bells and whistles and tweaks and features, but we do have amazing prices, amazing speed to transact, takes you less than three minutes end-to-end -to, -end to complete the, sale of, uh, the purchase of a policy. And, and you can self-service it at any time, and we'll never lapse your policy. It's the most flexible insurance product ever designed in South Africa. Have you so far in the year, just over a year you've, you've been running, uh, managed to profile what your perfect customer looks like, perhaps from a, a demographics point of view, 
what are you finding so far? Who, who's, who's adopting the, this change most readily so far? Okay, so just a correction. I mean, we registered our company in 2015, but we actually only went to market in May of 2016. So it's still quite early doors for us. Uh, um, but we already see starting to see some, some really interesting uh, perspectives. So we are seeing really mid-market consumers, uh, you know, typically young parents with families. They're the, the type of people that have the biggest need for insurance products. So people in their 30s and 40s uh, uh, are, are the guys responding the most. And uh, uh, but across the country and and different income segments, so certainly uh, we're finding quite broad appeal. And I think it's again it's the simplicity of of dealing with us that actually appeals to different customers. We have a very simple product set, so we can't sell you ten million rand a life cover right now. You know we certainly are aiming for lower income uh, consumers uh, uh, to start with. And so you went from being uh, the managing director of retail product and marketing at, at Liberty to this. To, what, to run essentially a startup. I mean, talk me through some of the 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 stark differences uh, of the of your role in in a major corporate uh, to to running a startup, and and what's what are some of the mindset adjustments you needed to make in order to to bridge the gap? So so look, Liberty is a great company. I had a great uh, career there, but when you get into senior leadership uh, positions in a large corporate. You tend to spend most of your time in meetings trying to find agreement around a strategy or a, dis a decision and then trying to mobilize hundreds of thousands of people to actually execute on a particular uh, piece of strategy. So a lot of time is spent communicating, meeting with people, resolving conflict, etc. And, you know, that's, that's very important work. But it does take you a little bit away from the coal face of actually dealing with customers and actually resolving problems yourself. And now being in a startup where, you know, we're a small team as we, as we get going, I'm having a lot of fun because I get to innovate the products. I get to, you know, have customer experience design sessions where we're actually debating, you know, how should we do this? How should we do that to deliver a bit better customer outcome at, at every turn? And, and so I'm loving that. I'm an innovator at heart. And I'm finding that being a lot closer to actually um, making those decisions is, is really good fun. But, of course, we don't have the, uh, the resources from a people or a financial perspective. And that also means we've got to be very creative in the way that, for instance, we're going to market. We simply don't have millions and millions and millions to go on television and radio, etc. So we've got to find very non-traditional ways of getting our message and our brand out there. So anything you miss from, from you know, working for a large financial institution? Aside from, you know, the massive budgets, what, what would you say... If you could, if there's one thing you could steal from, from your previous role in terms of a resource or, or an ac access to this or access to that, what's the one thing you take from, you, from, from the world you left behind? Look, I'm really loving the life of an entrepreneur, so, so I wouldn't go back for anything. But I think that um, if there was one thing that, that I would like, it's, it's for instance, the, the access to if you need a legal opinion. Well, you've got a team of lawyers that can apply their mind and come back to you with a professional opinion. You know, whereas here, if I need to work out uh, what the act says, well, then it's on a Tuesday night, you get out the act and you spend a couple of hours reading it. So you don't have the ability to leverage other skills and expertise to the same extent that you would in a, in a large corporate. And, and that just means that, that it takes a little bit more time sometimes to, to, to get to the bottom of things. So let's talk about the nuts and bolts of the products you've brought to market and the way you've gone about doing that from an actuarial point of view. How on earth are you making it? Um, how, how on earth are you making uh, uh, gains on 
allowing people to lapse on their policies. Let's start with that. So customers never, well, customers can choose to lapse their policies, of course, at any time. We will never lapse theirs. But people always ask me, how does this actually work? And again, back to the numbers at a, at a big picture. So if we look at, at life insurance policies, the SA industry issues about 7.5 million new policies a year and cancels or lapses about 6 million policies a year. So there's a huge amount of turnover. And think of all the money that is being spent in acquiring those 7.5 million policies. And what actually happens, we've done research on this, this previously, is that a customer will buy your funeral plan and they like the brand, they like the company, they like the funeral plan, they pay the premiums for three or six months. Then real life happens to them. Their mother gets sick or they have to travel or something like that. And for a month or two, they simply don't have money. Now, they still want the policy. They still need the cover, but they simply don't have money. And so the policy gets lapsed. What happens three months later? That same customer goes and buys a new policy, maybe from the original company, maybe from a different company, and the whole process starts all over again. So we just kind of said, guys, take a step back and just think about this. Isn't it better to retain that customer relationship? Even if you say, listen, I don't mind. Skip, pre skip your premiums for six months. I would rather retain the customer relationship. So when you have got money again, you simply pick up paying the premiums, your cover continues, and the customer never pays a penalty at MobiLife. And in the long run, that's just going to be so much of a smarter thing to do than to spend all this money reacquiring the same business year after year. I suppose there's also something to be said for the unique, uh, for for uh, using uh, mobile phones as a unique identifier um, that allows you to take some of those liberties as far, well, excuse the pun, that allows you to sort of <laughs> know where everyone is at uh, and, and maybe have the comfort of having data perhaps to, to, to give you the comfort of knowing that this person is not going to, you know, disappear off the face of the earth. Uh, strangely enough, Andile, that's quite a challenge because in South Africa, especially in the prepaid market, customers are changing their number two, three, four times a year. So it's actually quite difficult to keep track of a customer by assuming that, I mean, I may have had my mobile number for the last 10 or 20 years. But in general, customers are turning over their numbers very, very frequently. So that's actually quite a hindrance to our operating model. And so we've had to build ways of ensuring customer continuity, despite the fact that they might actually be changing their, their, their mobile number on, on several occasions. Isn't that an indictment on the system that's meant to, to give us all the, the sense of security? Uh, well, the RECA system in South Africa, I know Nigeria has gone through, well, continues to go through uh, um, a vi the very difficult process of registering all their SIMs. This issue is, is problematic in so many markets across the African continent. Uh, it, it sounds flawed. To, uh, well, I would have thought if it was working as well as it should, you wouldn't have this problem. Yeah, I think, you know, the reality is customers do what is easiest and best for them to do. And I think, again, particularly in credit active markets, if you, for instance, if you've taken a loan or uh, if you start being hounded by somebody that's looking for you to pay your area premiums or whatever the case might be, you know what, it's just easier for you to go and buy a new SIM card and actually get a new number than to actually deal sometimes with the legacy that you may have created with the previous number. So, again, I think, you know, customers are behaving perfectly rationally and it's actually simply, it's more convenient for them to change their number necessarily than to deal with some of the challenges that they've got based on other decisions that they, that they may have made. So that's the reality. Customers are not going to change that behavior. We have to adapt our business models to actually allow them to continue doing what they want to do and still be able to serve them in, in that way. 
And so the back end of this platform, is this a proprietary uh, is this a proprietary platform that you've built? And I ask because how how worried are you that, you know, the incumbents could could clone this idea and and roll out uh, and you know and basically crush you guys yeah um uh, people always say oh you got to protect your ideas you know because everybody will will copy them um so to answer your question um our operating model is being patched together from a couple of platforms that are available so uh, long-term insurance platforms that are that are provided as well as for instance the ability to pay a benefit by way of a grocery voucher so there's a company in the Cape called The Wire Group, as an example, that allows the issue of digital vouchers that can be redeemed at any of the national grocery chains. So we partner with them so that we can pay the benefit, for instance, on our food insurance product as a weekly grocery voucher rather than upfront, upfront cash. So I think that we are really leveraging cutting-edge technology platforms that are available these, these days. And the key difference is that the cost of our operating model enables us to offer insurance products at kind of unmatched prices. I mean, we, uh, in July this year, will be launching an insurance product for nine rand ninety nine a month. That's less than a dollar, or like uh, what sixty cents or something. I mean, that's that's less than a th- than a cool drink a month. Um, so really, by having a super low cost operating model with the customer self service paradigm, where customers will self purchase and self service their products, we can massively leverage the scale and capability of the system and pass that benefit back to customers. I mean, I wanted to get back to one of the second ways in which I believe the industry is not serving customers. If you compare at this bottom end of the market, our financial services board actually published a report a while ago saying that if you compare the the claims paid at an industry level relative to the premiums that have been charged, customers are getting back about 20 cents to 25 cents in the rand. So 75 cents in the rand is being consumed in distribution costs, um, administration expenses, and profit margins. For me, that is just absolutely unsustainable. How can we be serving lower-income consumers if we're taking 75 cents in the rent? And so by developing a high-technology, low-cost operating model that is massively scalable, we are looking to more than double that benefit-payback ratio in, in the longer run, You know, once we, we establish a book of business. And what does that mean for customers? it means lower prices. That's why we can offer an uh, insurance product at 9 rand 99 a month. We can make money. Customers gr- get a great deal. And it's all enabled by, by the, the, the high technology uh, model that we've implemented. I'm sure you'll agree, though, that uh, by and large, still on the continent, uh, access to the internet and certainly uh, you know, the use of smartphones is a luxury. It, it, and uh, listening to you speak, I'm wondering how much of a of a hurdle um, the literacy might be to or the lack of literacy might be to your to your business succeeding long term on the continent or in fact in the medium term on the continent yeah certainly um, in Africa and South Africa in particular access to the internet has been a challenge but it is changing quickly and rapidly so to give you some stats um, in South Africa more than 85 percent of access to the internet is via a mobile phone and in South Africa now, about 25 million smartphones are, are in place. It's about 50% of the population now has a smartphone with the access to the internet. And that number is growing all the time. So again, in three years' time, I think um, uh, smartphones will be, will be ubiquitous. But data is still very expensive. Accessing the internet is still a challenge. 
some uh, improvements are being put in place by government. Some municipalities are offering free Wi-Fi hotspots. The number of taxi ranks in, in, in South Africa where you get you know, 50 megabytes of, of free data a day. So we certainly are seeing a change there. And as I said earlier, you know, we may be a year or two ahead of that kind of wholesale change in customer behavior. But when that comes, and I fundamentally believe it is an inevit inevitable outcome, we will be there, we will have, will have been there for a couple of years and with a relevant business offering that we believe will be very attractive co to consumers when they are ready to, to transact online. As a super user of uh, techn technology and devices like smartphones, etc., you've made an excellent case to, uh, to me. In fact, I'll, I'll probably be checking it out at the prices you described. I might need to be looking in on some of your policies. Um, that's that said, um, let's take the taxi rank you you mentioned. You know, case in point. Some let's let's assume it's Randburg taxi rank, which is a very busy taxi rank in 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 the northern part of Joburg. And um, let's say there's wi free Wi-Fi, 50 megabytes. Practically speaking, given you know the, the the size of your hustle and the limitations you have, how are you making sure or m making uh, trying to access your service part of what I'm trying to do with that 50 megabytes, as opposed to say <laughs> updating my WhatsApp or checking my Facebook. Yeah, I think that's obviously the key, the key challenge, because what do you do when you're on the internet? You're surfing, you're watching some YouTube clips, etc. And so obviously we're going to be there on all the social media platforms that customers are using. So we do a lot of uh, advertising on, uh, on, on Facebook as an example. But, you know, customers don't really respond to a commercial message which is on Facebook because you're not on Facebook to buy. You're on Facebook to engage with your mates, to kind of maybe have a look at some funny information or learn something. And I think that's going to be our approach is to say, can we use those social media platforms to actually educate and entertain our consumers? So to give you an example, I mean, if we could launch a series of um, five one-minute YouTube clips that actually say, you know what, watch these clips to learn about the major pitfalls of insurance and how you can avoid those pitfalls. Subscribe to our service and we'll send you a, a link once a week. And in a minute, you can actually educate yourself and you can improve your, your, your circumstances. So those are the kind of examples of how we want to add value to consumers, be relevant, go to where they are. Don't expect them to come to you. We've got to go to where they are with meaningful information that they're going to find useful. And if we do that, they will start to know and like your brand. And then when it comes to the day that they say, well, you know, I actually need to put some funeral cover in place. Where am I going to go? I'm going to, going to go to MobiLife because these guys have been talking to me you know, all, all the way along. And of course, the nice thing is once we have you as a customer, we can engage with you, you know, so frequently. You don't get the once per annum snail mail letter, you know, which is a policy statement. You know, we're engaging with you all the time to say, hey, Andile, remember, in three, years t in three days' time, we want to collect your premium. You know what, if times are tough, then just actually you can ask us to skip this month's premium. Absolutely no problem. We won't lapse your policy. Those are the kind of things that are possible in this environment that are simply impossible if you have a traditional insurance business where you're sending paper-based letters to to customers so the traditional uh, mobile telco business uh, harbors at least in south africa harbors a lot of resentment to to newer players uh, the ott players the over-the-top players like whatsapp and, and 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 skype and those guys who seem to have come to the party late didn't invest in the infrastructure that 
that you know the mobile telcos did um but seem to be able to to basically ride this beautiful wave of of enablement and profit on it while the mobile telcos try and figure out how to milk legacy investments so i'm curious to know if there's a similar dynamic in the insurance field uh where you know the, the discoveries and the liberties and everyone else uh, out there, the legacy players might look on an operation like yours as an unfair uh, entrant to the market, given all the work they've put in. And then my question becomes what regulatory framework, if any, does an operation like yours uh, have to work under and that makes it maybe fair or, or unfair, you know, in terms of being on the same footing with, with incumbents. Look, I must say, I think the um, the long-term insurance industry in South Africa has a a well-established re- uh, reputation of being world leaders in, in innovation. And certainly, you know, whenever I speak to, to senior leaders at, at all the established players, they're all talking about mobile insurance because they know that's where their customers are going to want to, to deal with them I- in the future. So, so I certainly think there is an awareness of, of mobile and a willingness but they're grappling to adapt, as I say, the established and very successful business models into, into that paradigm. From a regulatory perspective, in South Africa, the Financial Services Board is a very strong and well-established regulator. And that's a great thing because we fundamentally believe that consumers need to be protected. They need to know that they're dealing with proper institutions that are not going to run away with, with their money. So we are certainly very supportive of the regulatory environment in South Africa. But I've got to tell you, as a startup, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to go through all of the, the necessary steps to get your licensing in place and to meet all of the requirements that, that are there. So the, the barriers to entry are, are pretty high, um, both from a kind of a simple, you need a lot of knowledge and experience to be able to, to know what to do. And then obviously from a capital perspective as well, to, to start your own insurance license does require quite a lot of capital, which, uh, which is difficult for a startup to, to actually manage. And so as an example, we have partnered with uh, a sale captive provider in South Africa to actually say, listen, we're much more interested in innovating and dealing with customers. We are quite happy to partner with an established provider to deal with the kind of the management of the insurance license and uh, all of the regulatory issues uh, around that. So that's actually worked pretty well for us uh, so far. As far as your strategy is concerned going forward, how important, how, how heavily are you leaning on the brand you've built and how open are you to, say, white label arrangements where you perform, you know, you basically sell white label products um, to, to existing players? Um, that's, that's pretty key to our strategy. I think, um, again, we're not naive. To build a financial services brand and, and get reach and penetration into the market takes a lot of money, which quite, quite frankly we don't have at, the, at this point in time. So we are taking a, a multi-pronged approach. We do want to build our own brand, which we will build slowly and over many years, primarily by giving a great customer out, uh, experience because we believe that if customers get a great experience, that word of mouth will really help us uh, grow a brand. But we do believe there are many opportunities to partner with established retail brands where you know, they, they may want to extend their reach into financial services. And so we've built a whole operating model in such a way that we can, in fact, easily design products that speak to the core brand proposition of the partner we want to deal with, white label the whole experience from the sales through to the self-service process. And that is at, uh, at the heart of what we want to do. So we have a multi-brand approach that we want to take to the market. And so what does your team look like? I mean, it's, it's a relatively small team at the moment. Um, 
<laughs> I'm lucky to have an in, 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 you know to in, to have insight into the pr you know product development cycle within actuarial product uh, products because my wife has worked in the field um and it 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 seems like a monstrous task it seems almost difficult to to imagine that only a handful of people could could execute on such innovative products and take them to market so what component of your team is from the, the the actuarial field, and how much of it, how much of your team is a technical component? Yeah, so so I'm very fortunate. I, I've got a, a fantastic team that I started the business with. In fact, it's four of us are, are friends, and I've known them for many many years. My three colleagues, and uh, together we've got about 75 years of experience in in long term insurance. So so we kind of know the game. We've got. A lot of experience across uh, uh, product development, financial management of, of, of a life insurance company, technical and, uh, and systems experience. So I'm just very fortunate to have kind of known a bunch of guys that, uh, that were willing to give up established and senior roles within an organization. And actually, we're backing ourselves to, to have a bit of fun and, and grow a business by doing good things for customers. But finding the right people is, the, uh, is, is absolutely the key. And the one skill set that uh, that I have been learning that we that we've now recruited the, the next person is in the marketing space because we really believe that this business is all about marketing, and particularly innovative marketing in a digital world, etc. So, our first sort of employee that's joining the business is is really a marketing specialist. In the tech space, there there are a lot of uh, typical scenarios around funding a startup. Yes. How has your startup? Uh, how does your startup match the the, the sort of Silicon Valley stereotypes, uh, and in in what ways have you have you done things quite differently to how we might expect a fintech startup to begin? That's been quite an interesting journey because uh, last year when uh, we were still busy preparing the the, the business and, and and building our products etc., we spoke to a number of you know whether it's venture capital firms or some of the established financial services firms. And and it's quite an interesting journey because most most of those guys all say your strategy is dead on. You know, really, um, mobile life insurance is the way to go. We all acknowledge that, but uh, most of them are still sort of saying they'd like to see us get some runs on the board before they they sort of are, are going to invest in the company. So, I think we're in a fortunate position that between the four of us, we've got enough capital to to fund the business for the first couple of years. Plus, uh, some reassurers are coming on board to provide some sort of medium-term funding. So we're in a, in a great position to be able to actually build the business out of the kind of true startup phase into, into the early phase. And then we believe that there are going to be many people that are actually very keen to, to partner with us and, and invest in the business. Now, this is interesting to me because uh, often we, we speak on the show about the differences between what, uh, how very little in some respects – uh, venture capitalists in more developed markets look for in terms of traction in in startups, uh, and how much more, uh, how much how much more a, a startup founder, even with a great idea, uh, a, a, a great team, a decent amount of traction, uh, how much more that kind of startup on the African continent has to prove to a VC in order to attract that their investment. Um, what kind of numbers are these guys looking for? What what sort of what sort of uh, traction would you need to achieve to to justify the an invest uh, like a, an inst institutional investor in the space so i think um it, it's not so much about the returns that we can offer because you know we've done our, our business plan and, and and the numbers that we've we're forecasting are 
are certainly very attractive and above the hurdle rates that, that most of the VCs or, or other companies are, are looking for. I suppose that, you know, if, if I kind of were to try and wear their hat, the issue is just that a lot of people are playing in this space. A lot of people are saying, no, we, you know, we're doing mobile insurance, etc. And so it's really just a matter about, you know, which horse are you going to choose to back? And I think um, particularly if you look at the financial services uh, businesses in South Africa, tend to be a little bit more conservative, don't really have a track record of, of sort of funding competitive brands or competitor brands effectively from within a stable, as an example. You know, typically, if you're a big bank or insurance company and you want to do something, you're going to do it within your own stable and under your own brand. So that has presented a bit of a challenge to us. And uh, again, the VCs are just all saying, you know, really great strategy, you know, show to us that you can actually execute and then they're going to be very keen to, to invest. So I think it's, it's more just an issue around timing rather than around, you know, whether they believe in the strategy or the model or the returns not being sufficient. Many of our listeners uh, are all over the world, certainly most of them on the African continent uh, listening to this conversation. Uh, what do you make of uh, other markets in terms of opportunity as far as you're concerned? I think um, obviously Africa is a huge developing economy or you know, many African countries are in a developmental stage. And all of the issues that I've spoken about in South Africa about financial services being too difficult to access, too expensive, too complicated, too inflexible, I think these are issues facing con consumers across the African continent and in South America, India, China, etc. So the entire developing world I think is facing many of these of these challenges. And we do believe that, you know, once we have got our model working, and especially, for instance, in the, the brand partnership space, where you're partnering with an established and trusted brand in, in a market, we do believe there are many opportunities to export this this model into into African uh, countries and, and, and other continents. Um, but of course, you know, we, we're focusing on South Africa first to get the thing up and running and and learn our lessons, tweak the model. But in time, certainly, I, w I would love to to take this further. I would think I would have thought that uh, on some level, given how quickly uh, you know the adoption of technology is impacting everybody, including you know newer, uh, perhaps more innovative players like yourselves, you'd be uh, quite anxious to get into those markets before anyone else did. I think it's simply a matter of, of focus and resources. You know, with a small team and limited amounts of capital, we have to get, you know, we have to focus on the knitting and get this market up and running, you know, the South African model up and running uh, first. And then the moment that's sort of stabilized, definitely we're going to be looking for, for growth opportunities. But, uh, but I think it's just a matter of we simply can't spread ourselves too thin at this point. Okay, then there's uh, the, the issue of literacy that I touched on earlier on and from a practical standpoint, uh, so what are some of the challenges you're finding in ensuring that the people who are buying your, your policies via you know, their mobile phones are adequately uh, um, educated about what it is they're getting? Yeah, I, again, so if you, if you look in South Africa, you know, with an adult population of, I think, th roughly 38 million South Africans, you know, above the age of, of, of 17, we are realistic that that our model will not be for everybody. So, you know, if you are a 70-year-old uneducated person living in a very rural area, you know, it is unlikely that you're the kind of person that is going to want to deal with Mobilife. It's just, I think that's a reality. 
But if you're a 22-year-old living in an urban area that has, has an education, you definitely got a smartphone in your pocket. We're kind of saying that's the kind of consumer that is only going to want to deal with, you know, their financial service providers in a mobile paradigm. And so we're just quite clear, we won't be for everybody, but we're going to be for those people that do actually want to leverage the power of their smartphone. We're going to be there for them. I'm going to ask you a really tough question that will require you to put your futurist cap on. Um, can you think potentially in your mind a, in an innovation that could disrupt the entire uh, uh, insurance industry as we've so far known it? And I mean completely disrupted. I mean in the, in the next 10 years, it ceases to exist in the format it currently exists uh, currently wholesale. And and if, if you can think of that thing, uh, what would it take to for that to happen, for it to roll out? So, yeah, that's a pretty tough tough question. I think there, there are a couple of technologies that are spoken of as being potentially a a significant threat to the insurance model as as we know it. So so firstly, let's maybe talk more at the higher end of the market, you know, where customers are buying many millions of rands or dollars of of life insurance company uh, cover and and you would typically go through a whole medical assessment process to make sure that you're in good health before you get get given that cover. So so I think as customers are gaining access to more and more information around their own health, their own genetic disposition, etc. I think the reality is it's probably already happening is that customers are able to use information that they have which the insurance company will not have to select against the insurance company. So as an example, if I go and I get my genetic uh, 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 genome mapped out, comes back to say, you know, Frank, you've got a high disposition to a particular disease because it's in your genetic stream. Well, I can then say, let me go and get insurance cover because it'll cover me against that. And I don't disclose that to the, in to the insurance company. That in the longer run, I think, will present some sort of a threat to, uh, to, to the risk pool that the guys are managing. And, and also just yeah, yeah, just generally access to, to information. Then there's obviously all the issues around uh, a security of customer or pri privacy of customer information. Will uh, insurance companies be able to ask the same questions in, in the future that they have been in the past? I'll give you an example in, uh, in Europe. Um, Short-term insurance companies may no longer rate motor vehicle insurance based on the gender of the person. It's, it's deemed to be discriminatory in, in, in European law. So now it's gender-neutral rates, although your experience may, may actually be quite different. So the insurance industry is going to have to adapt to, to those issues. At the bottom end of the market, I really think it's going to be all around the distribution model and the use of technology to replace the very expensive intermediaries that are out there selling, selling policies. It won't happen overnight, but I think on a 10 or a 20-year view, I think that the price that insurers are going to be able to charge is going to come under significant pressure as... Alternative models such as mine uh, find their niche in, in the marketplace and, and start growing. I'm going to test a prediction I've made, uh, probably not expressed on some level, uh, this idea that the, the large players in different sectors are going to start to consolidate um, because I'm finding that a lot of them are not content to stay in their own lanes. You've got banks that are now you know, mobile operators to a certain extent. You've got, uh, you know, insurers that are, you know, dabbling with, with all sorts of other things, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, and I'm thinking, uh, I, I predict that they on some, you know, I predict that they might close ranks and consolidate the information they have much to the, you know, uh, 
much to the worry perhaps of governments who think who might wake up one day and realize that they have far less information on their own citizens than say some of these private institutions but do you do you do you predict that sort of um what do you make of my prediction Okay, so so I think let's just cover a couple of, of separate things. So first, were you saying, you know, is there going to be consolidation, or you know, across different parts of the financial services industries, will banks and insurance companies, you know, uh, agglomerate or will, will they, they break apart? And I think there's there's a couple of things at play there. The first is, uh, it's it's all about capital. You know, in in a capitalist society, I think the the most capital efficient model is is ultimately going to going to 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 win and especially right now with the implementation of of Basel 3 recently and uh, uh, solvency 2 in the south african framework you know the capital requirements of insurance companies and banks have changed dramatically and i don't think the industry has quite yet got to grips with what that means for the end game in terms of does it is it better to uh, uh, spread risk across many different types of models and and have one big business or is it going to be more capital efficient to break the businesses apart and rather run them as small and leaner businesses? And I think that right now we're seeing very different players. I mean, for instance, the old mutual group in the UK is is busy breaking apart, whereas now the parts are actually starting to see more and more accumulation. So so it's a bit fluid from, from that perspective. Uh, if we talk again about the second uh, perspective, which is around customer information, sharing customer information, I think there's going to be a big drive both in South Africa and internationally around privacy of information and handing back ownership of that information to the consumer, giving them rights around the information that you hold on them. So I think this idea of I own you as a customer, you know, and I own your information and I can do with it what I want, I think that that model does not have, have long legs. I, th I think that the regulatory environment is inevitably going to put more and more protections in place for customers, which means that the choice is in their hands. They will deal with you if it suits them rather than because you've got some insight on, you know, on them, which, of course, goes against the whole big data investment that many, many people are making to say, let me build, you know, invest in, in, in this big, big data so that I can give you more relevant and better offerings. But that does sometimes, you know, touch a little bit on, on the customer privacy. So... These are interesting trends that are sometimes pushing in, in opposite directions, and it's going to be interesting to see how those play out. What about consolidation across industries? So uh, let's take a mobile telco and an insurer, for example, or a, uh, a, a fixed-line telco with a media company and those, and, those kind of, and those kind of opportunities. What do you see? So I think, for instance, if you look at the mobile network operators, I mean, they've got these huge customer bases with access to to them very easy access so for instance we're already seeing um, uh, some of the MNOs have set up uh, subsidiaries which are insurance companies others have entered into joint ventures with established long-term insurers and banks etc I don't think the regulatory environment is really going to make it feasible for a merger between an MNO and a large bank as an example but certainly you might have a, a captive insurer as a subsidiary of an MNO or more frequently, these joint ventures seem to be seem to be the way to go. And do you see those sort of arrangements as a potential risk to the model you're building here? For sure. Uh, I mean, obviously, if if one of the large uh, MNOs in South Africa, uh, you know, does invest heavily in insurance, they've got access to their customers, etc. That's going to be a very big competitor to me, right? Um, I suppose I just have to uh, uh, back ourselves that we're a little bit ahead of the game in terms of certainly the mobile space. And I think we've got a couple of innovations that nobody else has brought to the market yet. So we certainly 
Uh, we'll be bringing those, hopefully uh, improving customer outcomes. And we've got a couple of more where those are coming from. So it's going to be all about uh, strong and fair competition. And whoever gives the best deal to customers will, will win the business. And is there a, a p possible uh, acquisition of your business in your end game scenario, in any of the end game scenarios you could discuss here at your boardroom table? No, not at all. I, I mean, I, I love uh, this business. I, I love long-term insurance. I believe in, in the purpose and value of what we do. And so I've invested the rest of my career. I'm, I'm 44 years old now, so I'm hoping to spend another 20 to 25 years building MobiLife into a big and successful business measured by how much we can improve the value we offer to customers. Well, here's to hoping MD, MBA students all over Africa will be using your story as a, a case study for their theses. <laughs> Thanks very much, Andilian. That's kind. Thanks for talking to us, man. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversation.